Let's take our Bibles and turn back to the book of Hebrews chapter 4 today. Hebrews chapter 4. Looking at the first 10 or 11 verses here. Our subject is rest. And a lot of you would say, well, I could use some rest right now. Now, rest is a hard commodity to come by sometimes, and, and we're weary and we're tired and we're stressed and we're looking for something to give us some relief. And uh, in, in modern times, in our culture, we often look to uh, vacations and hobbies and trips and whatever else to, to give us some relief, to give us some rest, uh, to remove some of our stress. But as I was thinking about this passage of Scripture and this subject today, I was thinking about what the Scriptures have to say, and there's no place anywhere in the Word of God that says while we are weary and rest, needing rest or we're stressed, we're anxious, that what we ought to do is take a vacation, that we ought to take a trip, that we ought to take up a hobby. And none of those things are ever mentioned in the Scripture. Of course, in most cultures then and now, vacations were something only the very wealthy could do. And we are very privileged people to have those kinds of things today. But Scripture never talks to us about relieving our stress and finding rest through those kinds of things. And, and in our culture, when we have the privilege of going somewhere on vacations and whatever, uh, most of us don't know the difference between uh, recreation and vacation and, and true rest. And we, uh, we don't know what it is to rest our souls. We're so busy on our vacations. How many of us have come back from vacation and says, I, I need a vacation for my vacation? That's pretty common, isn't it? We're war, we wear ourselves out. But when I turn to the Scriptures, and what does the Word of God say about rest and stress and tension and uh, weariness? Uh, where does that turn us? And I think of the, perhaps the most sweetest, the greatest invitation and all the Word of God is found by Jesus Himself in Matthew chapter 11. We've talked about this several times recently. What was that invitation to a weary, bone-weary people? He turned to them, His, his, his people, and He said, Come unto Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls." For my yoke is easy and my load is light. Well, that had to sound good to those people that day. They were tired. They lived in a primitive world, very difficult world, very hard world. On top of that, the religious leaders, mainly the Pharisees, had determined that the best way to become spiritual is load up your life with rules. Rules and regulations. Man-made stuff. And the more you have, the more godly and spiritual you can become. And they simply overwhelmed the people. And they couldn't handle all that was going on. And Jesus turns to that same crowd. And He said, All you who are weary and heavy laden with the burdens of life and the burdens of man-made rules and laws, all of you come to Me and I will give you rest. And I'll give you rest for your soul. What a, what a sweet and glorious invitation. What about us as Christians who already have come to Christ? It's easy for us to grow weary in our endeavors. Matter of fact, Scripture tells us in the, in the epistles that we be careful we do not grow weary in well-doing. So that is a possibility out there. And some people overwhelm themselves and, and wear out in that regard. I, one Baptist made this little jingle up. It said, Mary had a little lamb. It was a marvelous sheep until it joined the Baptist church and died from lack of sleep. 
On the other hand, a lot of people are just plain spiritually lazy. They've gotten to a certain place by the ripe old age of 35 and decided they're going to coast on into heaven now. And that's enough of that. How, how ridiculous that is. And so we're looking for a balance. What does God say in His Word about rest? What Scripture really has to say about true rest. I want you to go to chapter 3 with me for just a moment. In chapter 3 and chapter 4, 11 different times he mentions the word rest by name. And he alludes to it several other times, so the whole subject is rest. That's not hard to come by. You'd have a hard time missing that if you just read the passage. But understanding what he means is a whole different thing. This is, I think, one of the most difficult passages to interpret in all of Scripture. And so I'm going to do my best today to try to bring to you what I think it means. But we have to start with chapter 3 and look at what is it that, what are the barriers to rest? What are the true barriers to the rest of and for your soul? Chapter 3 loads us up with barriers. I want you to just kind of flip down with your eyes as I go through these. There's a whole group of them, a dozen or so, that we'll have to touch on very quickly. First of all, verse 8 of chapter 3, one of those barriers is a hard heart, which he mentions three times in chapter 3. Do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me. A hard heart will guarantee, spiritually hard heart, will guarantee that you cannot find God's rest. Then they tested God in this same verse. They provoked Him as in the day of trial in the wilderness and where their fathers tried me by testing me for 40 years. Testing God will guarantee you that you will be weary in this life. God's anger then comes out of that in verses 10 and 11. Therefore I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their hearts. They do not know my ways. I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest because of the hardness of their hearts, because they were testing God. God's anger came upon them. You cannot find rest when God is angry with you. And then in verse 10, they're straying, going astray in their hearts. Therefore I was angry. They always go astray in their hearts. Always starts in your hearts, folks. But then secondly, in that same verse, and they he says, he says, and they did not know my ways. By going astray in their hearts, it guaranteed they would not understand the ways of God. And if you don't understand the ways of God, you will be weary. And you'll never find God's rest. Verse 12 tells us, that if an evil heart will do the same thing for you, take care, brethren, that there not be any uh, one of you with an evil heart. And secondly, an unbelieving heart, a heart that doesn't believe God. And verse 12, one that falls away from the living God rather than following in his ways or falling away from the living God. And then in verse 13, he goes back to the hardening. He says, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. Deceitful sins will lead us to hard hearts and will lead us to restless lives and weary lives. And then he says in verse 18, he says, disobedience will do the same. And to whom did he swear that they could not enter his rest, but those who were disobedience? Disobedience will lead to spiritual unrest. And then unbelief, verse 19. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. So here's a whole slew of barriers if, you, if you're weary today, if your soul is worn out, if you cannot find rest for your soul, if you spend your life in anxiety and weariness almost all the time, if you look at chapter 3, you'll know why. These are the barriers to true rest. 
People turn to other things. They turn to pills. They turn to hobbies. They turn to, to uh, trips. They turn to vacations. They turn to this, that, or the other. They're all turning the wrong directions. That is called the deceitfulness of sin. Rather than that, we turn to the living Jesus Christ, the living God, who says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and there you'll find rest for your soul. All that is prelude. We haven't got to our text yet. See, these things wear us out. They wear us down. But Christ says, I have a rest for you. Isn't that inviting? I have a spiritual rest for you. If that's true, we would be wise to find out what that is, right? I want to know, what is this rest that God has promised us? So let's start off by finding out what it is not. I find often that it's helpful to figure out what something is by finding out what it is not. And as we look at this, because we're, we're familiar, you know, we, we come up with a phrase we're used to, like the word rest, and we immediately infuse it with our own definition, and we don't see the definition God has given us. And so we need to be careful here. When about 23 years ago, I preached through Hebrews, uh, and, on, uh, and on a Wednesday night, I went to the congregation, I said, I want you to read these 11 verses, and I want you to write down what you think rest is, and then tell me what it is. And I'm not surprised, that, given the fact that it was just a quick read, and they didn't have much time to think about it, that they came out with all sorts of strange ideas. But as I read commentators, and I'm reading about a dozen different commentaries for the book of Hebrews, as I read the commentaries, I found that the commentators were often just as confused. They had a whole plethora, is that the right word? I like that word. A whole bunch of ideas about what rest was. Here's eight of them that that they came up with. The rest of faith resulted in salvation. Freedom from worries and whatever disturbs us. To be at peace. To be free from the feelings of guilt. Freedom from worry about sin. The end of legalistic works. The millennial rest and the eternal rest. That's a lot of different kinds of rests that they're looking at here. Some of those are better than others. One commentator that I like a lot, nevertheless, came up with this one. He said that the Hebrews, as this book was written to them, uh, and it was experiencing Christ, and, and was and Christ was not living up to their expectations, and therefore they were restless. Instead of rest, was turmoil. He said, and they came to Christ expecting a good deal. But now they were living an ordeal, and now they want a new deal. And that's what he said, anyway. And th- this is true, he said, because there's two kinds of faith here. There's a saving faith, who come to Christ by faith alone, and we'll see that. And then there's a faith of trusting Him for everyday issues of life. Now, there's truth to that. I would agree. Saving, there's people who, and many of us are in that category, we can trust in the Lord, we have faith in the Lord for our eternal destiny, that we can't trust Him for this afternoon. We can trust Him for eternity, but this afternoon or next week, we can't trust Him with those things because those are too big for God to handle, so I've got to help Him by being anxious and restless and full of tension and sad and brokenhearted. Because i got to help God out because He's not big enough for next week. He's big enough for eternity, but not next week. So there's kinds of faith, aren't there? And quite frankly, right? All of us are in that category sometimes where we are not trusting God for the immediate needs of life and we are restless as a result. But having said all that, 
I'm going to suggest that none of the things I just mentioned is really what he's talking about concerning rest here. So what is it that he's talking about? Now, we're going to do some real serious thinking here for the next few minutes. You're going to need to strap on your thinking cap. No dozing allowed for the next 10 minutes. You can do that later, but not now. You're going to have to think if you want to understand what God says. And I, I do. I want to know what kind of rest this is. And we're going to have to think hard about this. So what is it? So let's go back to our passage. First of all, it is one rest, and it's God's rest. Four times he says that. In verses 1 and 10, he says, it is his rest. In verses 3 and 5, he said, it is my rest. It is God's rest. It's, it's, and there's one rest that he's talking about, a single rest. So what is that rest? In order to help us understand, the Holy Spirit inspired the author of this book to give us two illustrations that help us understand where he's going. And at first, those illustrations just seem to muddy the water. I'll be honest with you. But when we finally put it together, we see what he's saying. The first illustration has to do with the Creator God. In verse 3, he says, For we who have believed enter the rest, just as he said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although, there it is, his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. That's Genesis 2, 2 there. So here's the picture. Genesis chapter 1, the Creator, God created the universe, right? And at the end of every day, if you go back to Genesis 1, it says that the morning and the evening was the first day, the morning and the evening was the second day, and so forth. And on six days, God created it all. And then chapter 2, verse 2, we come to the seventh day. It says on the seventh day He rested, so the day began, but there was no evening to the seventh day. That caused the Jewish rabbis back in ancient times to say this is because this rest that God has given, he calls it down in verse 9, I believe, the Sabbath rest. This rest is perpetual. It is eternal. It never ends. God created a rest for the plant, for planet Earth and for humanity and for all things. In other words, when God was done creating, the world and the universe was at peace. It was at rest. And human beings were too. They were perfect. They were without sin. And on that planet, God said, I'm going to, to have these people, these human beings, be my viceroys, my, my representatives. They're going to tend the garden I've created, and they're going to rule the world I've created, and they're going to do it in rest. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. We, we are called today to work and to, and to do all the things that we do in life, and that's great, but wouldn't it be wonderful if we could do that with absolute rest in everything we do, every action we take, every endeavor, every thing, every effort is in complete and total peace and rest. That seems impossible, doesn't it? But that's the way it was at the beginning. When the Lord was done, that's the way the world was. That's the way the universe was. No corruption. Absolute peace, resting in God, carrying out the, the the things God had called them to do, but at complete peace and rest. And that's the Sabbath rest that I think he's talking about here. In verse 9 he says this, so there remains a Sabbath rest. That's what he's talking about, the Sabbath rest that God had intended for us. There it is. 
That is the rest. The eternal, perfect rest that God designed this universe for, designed people to live in. But something went terribly wrong in chapter 3, you recall. In chapter 3, Adam sinned. He, he bought into the deceitfulness of sin from, the, from Satan. And the next thing you knew, not only had he sinned, not only had he died spiritually, not only had all that happened, but corruption entered the human race. And with it, peace. And with it, rest. And, and they were chased from the garden. They were chased from the place of rest. And the storyline of Scripture, folks, if you think about it, the storyline of Scripture from chapter 3 of Genesis to the, to the last chapter in Revelation chapter 22, the storyline of Scripture is God, what God was doing to restore us to rest. The process that He's taking to restore us to what He had once created and how He had designed human beings to live on this planet. That is going to be restored. That Sabbath rest is, is yet remaining. God is restoring that. God will restore that when He comes, when Christ comes again and sets up His kingdom eternally on earth, and that will be restored. That is, now get this down now, that is what He's talking about. This is the rest He's talking about. Okay, now there's a second illustration. At first seems to mess things up, but it doesn't. The second illustration is Old Testament Israel. From chapter 3, verse 6 to chapter 4, verse 11, He's talking about Israel during the Exodus. Now, I said this last week, I'll say it again this week, you really can't understand the New Testament if you don't understand the Old Testament. And especially Hebrews, of all the books of the New Testament, only Revelation even rivals Hebrews in its, re its reliance on the Old Testament. Quotes dozens and dozens of Old Testament quotes and looks at the things that are going on in the Old Testament. I, and if you don't know the Old Testament, you're kind of wallowing in, in ignorance and so I hope as we're going through this together, you're, you're learning something if you don't know the Old Testament as you're gathering. But I encourage you sincerely to go back and start reading the Old Testament. And especially going through Hebrews, read the first five books of the Old Testament. A chapter a day will get you done pretty soon. You, you can read a chapter a day in Genesis 1, or from Genesis through Deuteronomy while I'm going through Hebrews. You can do that six times. Probably, you know, you're going to have plenty of time to get through it. But you won't understand what he's saying if you don't understand the Old Testament. We don't, we're, we're people of the book of the whole scriptures. The Old Testament are foundational. And so here he is. He's given an illustration of the Old Testament. And he says in chapter 3, verse 16, he said, For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt by Moses. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But those who had been disobedient. Drop down to chapter 4, verse 5. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest, he says. Therefore, and, he quote, and now he's quoting here from Psalm 95, by the way. And therefore... Since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying, Through David also, after so long a time, just as it has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And so he takes us through all this to say, look, the people of Israel in the Old Testament, the, the Exodus generation, never entered his rest. 
And why didn't they enter his rest? Because of disobedience. That was the barrier. They never went into the land of promise because of sin and disobedience. So you cannot enter God's rest. You cannot participate in God's rest if you're living in disobedience. But a Bible student, someone who knows the Old Testament, said, aha, but Joshua took them to the promised land, didn't he? Well, our, our author is ahead of you. He's like a lawyer. In, chap, in the very next verse, he says in verse 8, For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. He says, yes, Joshua tucked them into the land. As a matter of fact, in Joshua 21, 22, and 23, it says clearly that he brought them into rest. And it says clearly he gave them rest from all their enemies. And so some may say that's what he's talking about. But our author says, no, no. He says, if he had been able to do that, we wouldn't speak about another day. We wouldn't be speaking about a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So why bring it up? If Israel didn't succeed in finding the rest we're talking about, why did he even bring them up? Because he wants us to know that there is only one key, one means of getting into God's rest. And that is by faith. Sometimes I come to church here. Well, I usually drive a minivan, you know, that's a wonderful thing. Everybody drives minivans. And I have my, with my key, with my minivan, I have the key to the church and I unlock the door and I get myself in and that's great. But once in a while, when Marsha isn't using our Bronco to go mudding down the creeks and stuff, uh, once in a while she lets me drive the, her car. And if I do that, I, the key for that car does not have the right key to get in the door of church. I have an interior key, but not an exterior key. And inevitably, I show up at the door, try my key, and it doesn't work. And I'm a very stubborn person, so I keep trying. It still doesn't work no matter how hard I try, because it's the wrong key. What is the key to God's rest? From the beginning to the end, from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22, the key is faith. Now look at this with me. He says in verse 2, For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Faith. He says here in, in, the verse, in verse 3, for we who have believed enter the rest. In verse 2, it's united by faith. In verse 9, he says that there still remains a Sabbath rest. And so what is he saying? To enter God's rest, we have to have a key. The key to God's rest is faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. That gives us his peace, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. That is the beginning. And let me say this. What he's saying is this. Faith opens the door through Jesus Christ to rest. It's the key that opens the door. Once we're saved, once we placed our faith in him, we are, I would say, in the corridor of rest. We're in the door. We're in the corridor. 
but there's more to come. We're there, but we're not there. We're in the corridor of, of rest, but the true rest remains, as he says in verses 9 and 10, there remains something more that we look forward to, that eternal rest, that Sabbath rest with him. Now, having said all that, and I hope you got that, if you're a Christian, let me re- reiterate, if you're a Christian by faith alone in Christ alone, if you've come to Him on that basis, you have entered the corridor, the passageway to faith, to, uh, to uh, rest that He has provided. But this is a world still filled with sin. It's a world still filled with troubles and problems of all kind that we will have to navigate through. The eternal rest, the Sabbath rest that remains for us is yet in the new eternal life, the eternal life on earth, the new heavens and the new earth that's outlined in Revelation 21 and 22. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're headed for. Now now we go back to verse 1. He brings all of this up, this whole thing we just talked about, because he's concerned about something. There is a danger of some in his audience of never entering that rest. And he says that in verse verse 1, Therefore let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. There's his concern. Are there though, is it possible that some in this congregation are not truly saved? Let us fear that that might happen. If if you've done any witnessing at all to people, if you told people about Christ, you know, the hardest thing to do is get them lost. For them to recognize they have a need for Christ, to recognize they're sinners, to rec- you, you could ask, are you a Christian? We say, well, sure, I'm a Christian. Why do you ask? Because you don't act like a Christian. Don't seem like you're a Christian. Well, I prayed a prayer once. Well, okay, that sounds great. Are you saved? He's concerned about a group of people like that. A group of nominal Christians, a group of people who, who made a profession, but he doesn't see any reason to believe that they're truly saved. And he is saying to them, I want you to be afraid if you're not saved. Now, the irony is this, folks. God doesn't want you to be a fearful Christian. Matter of fact, God wants you to know you're saved. Look at this, 1 John 5.13. The things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. God wants you to know you have eternal life. God wants you to know you are saved if you are saved. But if not, He wants you to be afraid. Passages like these all the way through the Bible say these things, and I can't read that. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus tells us to be concerned. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul says, test yourself. In, in James chapter 2, verse 14, if anyone says he has faith but has no works, he says, uh, can that faith save him? In 1 John 1, 6, he says that if we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. In verse four, chapter 2, verse 4, he says, and one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. The one who says that he abides in him all to himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brothers in darkness until now. You think that's serious stuff? I think it's serious stuff. 
He is saying those who are making this profession of faith, but their life has not been changed by Jesus Christ, have every reason to be afraid. And quite frankly, folks, I hope some of you go out of here with your mouth dry, your knees knocking, your, your heart pounding, because you don't know if you know Jesus Christ. Don't rely on that old prayer. Don't rely on some some baptism. Don't rely on church membership. Do you know Jesus Christ? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin by faith alone? And has He radically began a process of changing your life? Not perfection. Nobody's going to get there. But we see a change in our lives through Jesus Christ. He's concerned. Now let's examine the argument for just a moment. It is possible for one who believes he's a Christian to come short. And he says that here in verse 1. If any one of you might seem to come short of it. Remember back in the days of when circus trapeze artists would not would work without a net? I think they've changed the rules now. But back in the day, uh, they would be swinging from trapeze, uh, swing to the one to one to the other without a net. If they came short of grabbing one of those swings, they could fall to their death. And it didn't matter if they missed it by half an inch or by a yard, they still came short. And if they came short, they died. He's concerned that some of them may become short. Now, I want to say this. One of, if not, well, at, least, at least one of the major themes of Hebrews that we're going to get to in two weeks is that the Lord wants us to not only know we're saved, but not to live in fear but to be able to come in great confidence to the throne of grace and find peace and grace and mercy through Jesus Christ. The fear of God, of course, is all the way through Scripture. We've talked about that before. But he, he wants us to know that God loves us. He wants us to know God invites us. He, he wants us to know that we can come to Him with anything in our hearts and our lives, and, and He will hear us. He wants us to know that. And that's one of the great Themes of the book of Hebrews. So he does not negate that. But he does say, if you're not truly saved, you should fear. Because you are going to miss out on the eternal rest of God. Fear is actually a gift from God. If, it, if the thing we're afraid of, should be afraid, we should be afraid of it. I read of a... Of a Mother who came in the house one day with groceries. She had a bunch of kids. Five of her kids, little ones, were just sitting around in a circle in the living room, being just, just playing with something in the middle, just having a, a good time, just quietly playing. She was curious, of course. She went over and looked to see what they were doing. Each of them had a skunk in their hands. Five little baby skunks, beautiful little skunks. The mother went berserk. Run, children, run! They run. They jumped up and each grabbed a skunk and ran. And she hollered again, Run, kids, run! And they squeeze their skunks. And skunks don't like to be squeezed. If there's something to be afraid of, be afraid of it. You don't need to be afraid of God in a cringing fear. You need to have perfect fear of God as Scripture describes. But we are to be afraid of falling short of true life in Christ if, in fact, we don't have it. And then he talks in verse 2, we, we enter God's rest by faith, for indeed we have good news preached to us just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them. Now good, the people in the Old Testament heard the word. They heard the gospel. It didn't profit them because it was not united by faith 
in those who heard. It doesn't do you any good today, folks, to be sitting under the preaching of the Word and hearing what I'm saying and ignoring it. Matter of fact, it's the worst thing you could do. The worst place you could be right now is here. You're better off at a tavern. You're better off uh, at a junkie's house. You're better off anywhere than under the hearing and proclamation of God's Word if you're going to ignore it. It's a dangerous place to be. The Puritans used to joke that the reason why so many people went bald when they were preaching is the Word of God bounced off of their heads and knocked off their hair. <laughs> and they had a lot of bald people apparently in their congregations. So I don't think that's biblical. But the, the point is, they needed faith. You need to ignite faith to what you hear. Hearing it does no good. Faith, you must be united with faith. And the word here for unity, united in verse 2, is a word that means to mix together. If you have weeds in your driveway and you want to kill it with some Roundup, you get a Roundup concentrate and put it in your sprayer with water and go out and spray them. But if you don't put the Roundup in the spray bottle and you spray your weeds with water, you're just growing them. But if you mix it with the, the weed killer, then you kill it. It does you no good to hear the Word if you don't unite it with faith. You fall short of His rest. The Jews, when they left Egypt, verse 2, heard the news, but it says it did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. Saving faith then results in lasting obedience. This is the next point. Saving faith results in lasting obedience. Look at chapter 3, verse 18. We saw last week. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But those who were disobedient. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Notice the last word in verse 18 and the last word in verse 19. Verse 18 says they couldn't enter because of disobedience. Verse 19 says they could not enter because of unbelief. They could not live the life because they didn't believe the life. Their unbelief would not allow them to be obedient. And he's reversing that here. Faith gives us the life of obedience. Now, not again. No perfection here. Faith plus works will never save you. Faith in Jesus Christ will bring you to Christ. But it does lead to a life of obedience and transformation. And so if you have in your life, if in your life you are you, you proclaim Christ, you profess Christ, but you refuse to turn from sin in your life, you refuse to obey, what do you think this passage is saying to you? You think the author of Scripture here is just playing around and saying, ah, don't worry about it, you'll probably make it. Maybe not, but who cares? You know, you might get there. That's a pretty dangerous place to be. Pretty dangerous indeed. Verse 11 is the invitation. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that, and notice diligence, make sure about this, so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. What an invitation. Do you have a faith that has changed your life? Or is the faith of words only? For those who enter God's rest through faith, they have more awaiting them. That's the point. There is a Sabbath rest, verse 9, awaiting us where we will enjoy the perfection of the universe, the restored universe with our Lord forever in resurrected, glorified bodies. And we will enjoy His rest forever. 
But right now we can enter that corridor in preparation for that eternal life through faith in Christ alone. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that I was trying to change a blade on my uh, lawn edger, and for the life of me, I could not turn the bolt to take the blade off. I had one of the grandkids come over who had better tools than me, and we tried for a long time to break that bolt open. It would not work. It began. I began to think, you know, I've heard of this. I've heard of some bolts that turn actually the opposite way. You know, righty, right, see, righty, right. Yeah, you know it better than I do. So, righty tidy, lefty loosey. Got it. Okay, so, so I, I kept going in my mind. I'm doing this right. Righty, righty, lefty loosey. What if this bolt was one of those backward bolts? What if I was just tightening it and tightening it and tightening it? It was never going to come off because it go in the wrong direction. What if righty is Lucy and Lucy is righty? What, what am I going to do? It started going through my head. Maybe I'm going the wrong direction. I want to apply that to this. What if you are diligently trying to come to the Lord, but you're going the wrong direction? You're trying through your own efforts. You're wore out going to church. You're wore out trying to read the Bible. You're wore out trying to obey God. You've done all the stuff that people have told you to do, but you're no closer to the rest of God than you ever were. Is it possible you're going the wrong direction? Could you instead go back to what Scripture says and says, which says, look, you'll never know my rest through your own efforts, but you can diligently enter His rest by faith alone, trusting Him alone. And then we're back to where we began, Jesus' precious, precious invitation Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My friend, if you do not have the rest of God, would you come to Jesus Christ today, the only one who can give you rest. Come to Him now by faith alone. Father, we thank You for Your Word, for Your truth. Lord, uh, we, we're so grateful that there's a rest awaiting us that is eternal and perfect, and that we can begin to taste of that rest even now. We're so thankful. Lord, I pray for any here today who does not know you, that they will not simply turn a deaf ear to this, but they'll pay attention. They will fear and come to you by faith alone. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.